Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. You could say Jesse Alk has filmmaking embedded in his DNA. His father, Howard Alk, was a noted documentarian of the 60s and 70s. But Howard Alk died at an early age, before a young Jesse could learn, or even understand really, the craft at which his father excelled. Forty years later, the son found himself following in the father's footsteps, in a geographic sense, literally, but also, more importantly, in a professional sense. Jesse's journey began in Kolkata, India, where his father had documented West Bengali musicians in the early 70s. Jesse Alk wandered the city and noticed how the ubiquitous pariah dogs of Kolkata had formed a society all of their own. It ran parallel to human societies in many ways, but intersected with humans in other deep and meaningful ways. Three years of filming later, Alk emerged with the core of his 2019 film, Pariah Dog. It's a film that captures aching themes of loneliness and desperation, not only in the dogs that live there, but also in the human beings who devote their lives to caring for them. Jesse Alk joins me today from Palmer, Alaska, where he's developing the concept for a new documentary film set in the 49th state. So, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm guessing you can't conceive of a film of this kind without having spent a lot of time in India. Tell me about your history in that country and how you came to see these dogs and these people as a film. Well, um, I, I went to India in 2010 with a friend of my father's. Um, my father was a filmmaker. He passed away when I was a child. And he, just before I was born, he'd gone to Calcutta. And um, they'd made this film called Luxman Bell's Movie about battle musicians in in West Bengal. He'd spent this time in India and his friend, Sally Grossman, who just passed away, uh, took me there in 2010. Through that, I met my friend, Aditi Sarkar, who ended up being the executive producer on, on this film. And uh, we became friends and I came back with Battle Archive about four or five times over the next few years. The dogs I had from the very beginning been thinking about the street dogs. You know, when I went to India for the first time, I, I didn't know anything about it. I purposely didn't read anything. I knew what, you know, most Americans know about India, but I, I just got on the plane. And the very first thing that happened when I landed at the airport, which was the old Calcutta airport, first thing I saw was there was a dog on the tarmac, which I'd never seen. You know, I thought, what is a dog doing running around on the tarmac? Then we got down, we went outside the airport and there was construction sand, which I would later see many, many times. The dogs love construction sand because it's soft and warm. There was about four or five dogs sitting on the construction sand at the airport. And that, that really struck me. And then I just over the course of the next several trips, just developed this obsession with the dogs. I'd watch them, I'd photograph them. I just got very interested in their lives. And at the same time, really fascinated by, by Kolkata. It's, it's a very unique city. And so I got interested in these dogs and I was watching them. I started to conceive of this documentary, which was at the time going to be very much like a city symphony film. And I was watching Apropos Denise and I was watching, you know, all the other great city symphony films. And I was watching films about animals. And I was thinking I would make a film about the city through the eyes of the dogs. Part of what drew me to them is because if you sat and watched the street dogs, there were these dramas playing out between them. And this, they had their own sort of hidden society that was parallel to the human society with points of connection but there was this life and death drama that was playing out. And, and my initial visitor's take on it was that they were 
completely being ignored. It just seemed like people were walking by and there was these stories playing out that no one was seeing and they were in, in plain view. It was going to be a different film. I, I originally thought very much like I bought one of the very first economical gimbals there were and I was going to follow the dogs at dog height and sort of a dog perspective and glancing views of, of the humans who interacted with them. So I did this scouting trip to see like, is it really feasible? And I stayed for six weeks. And um, in that six weeks, I got this sequence with this crippled puppy, which is in the trailer and the film. And um, that was like, sort of, okay, you know, this is an intense sequence. I want to do this. As the film evolved and I found these human caretakers and, and discovered some of them were so interesting, it slowly shifted to be more and more about them. And we were looking for people who we were sort of casting the film around the idea of pariah and who was an outsider and who was an insider and who was part of society and who wasn't and who was lonely. And we were, we were looking for people who sort of matched that in some way. So let's talk about the stars of the film, which are the dogs. This is a native breed. These are not strays. Uh, they come from the area and they're deeply integrated in, into street life, as you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between the humans of Kolkata and the dogs? Yeah. I mean, the first point you make here is important. And, and there was actually a lot of pressure from some of my early viewers to, to include context about that because they're not, they're not stray dogs. Um, they're the, the, the breed name is the Indian pariah. They're as close almost as close as we have right now to the, what they call the original dog, uh, possibly self-domesticated, sort of existing as scavengers in, in villages of India for thousands of years, maybe. They're different. Uh, and I also, I think their behavior is different. Um, they're extremely intelligent. They're extremely independent. They're extremely healthy if they have enough food and suited to the climate. So They've had this symbiotic relationship with humans for a long time. One of the things that struck me observing them is, and why I brought up loneliness uh, a minute ago, is they obviously rely on humans to some extent for food. They scavenge from the garbage. They're fed by some humans. They exist as scavengers, basically. They also have this deep need for human companionship, most of them, a lot of them. So it was very interesting to me that like a hungry dog is not just looking to you for food. If you give that dog some affection, he might follow you for blocks. He might, they'll just love you. They'll just melt sometimes, you know, because they, they want it so bad. They still want it and they don't get it very much. So um, some do. It depends. It's neighborhood to neighborhood. It's very neighborhood to neighborhood how the dogs are treated. And, and that kind of goes to this human connection in every locality, there'll be a different culture of how to deal with the dogs. Some really look at them as nuisance or threats. Some very much look after them and the dogs are in good health. I think most people have some relationship. Most, most in, in a lot of places, the dogs are named. They don't really travel outside a certain radius because they're very territorial and the city like is somewhat of a grid. So the, the locals all know the local dogs. So the shopkeepers will know the dogs in front of their house. Like, you know, the locals will sort of, some don't, some don't really pay attention to them as if they don't exist, but most people do. And, and then there's these people like the people in my film who 
really make it like their life's mission to feed them some politically and some just out of goodness of their heart. Uh, and there's also a middle-class group of animal welfare activists and dog activists who really uh, support the street dogs. Those people are uh, really incredible. And, you know, some of those people, they are um, performing like medical services for the dogs on the street. Um, they're picking the dogs up and getting them vaccinated and sterilized in some cases. They're medicating them. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy in India about the dogs as well. Uh, a lot of the newspapers refer to it as the street dog menace. Some parts of India want to get rid of them. And in some places, there's a lot of human dog conflict. Uh, there have definitely been street dog attacks. Rabies is a big problem in India, and there's vaccination attempts. Uh, occasionally, there's calls to, to call the dogs, which has happened. But India has good laws on the books about that. It is illegal to kill a dog or even to pick it up, medicate it or sterilize it and drop it off in a different location. You have to drop it off where you picked it up. But those laws aren't really enforced and the fines are very low. It's a, it's a mixed bag. So the cinematography is just outstanding. You find a way to make Kolkata look bigger than life and yet still quiet, undeveloped and a little bit sad. Did you have a sense of how you wanted to portray the city before you started filming? Yeah, it was very intentional. I wasn't really happy with how, uh, especially Western films generally show Kolkata. It's not, it's not, it wasn't my experience of it. I think a lot of filmmakers would fly to Kolkata and just go right to the slums. I mean, it even happened there with like a TV channel while I was there. You know, they flew in and made a film about kids living on the railroad tracks. Well, you can make that film. Um, that is a part of Kolkata, but it's not the whole part, and it's not most people's day-to-day -day experience. So I wanted to show it in a different way. Uh, and, and I feel like I saw the city in a way that local people who've seen the film appreciate. To me, it's a beautiful place. It's like a, a, a sort of dreamlike, can be a dreamlike place. It can be a very harsh place. It's, it's a place where like life is going on in your face all the time. And uh, I wanted to capture that in a way that was very intentional. So we tried to put the camera on the tripod as much as possible. I, I intended to have zero handheld in the film, but I, I had to switch that. And I, and I had a pretty firm rule about never handheld of dogs. Like I didn't want shaky cam chasing around of dogs or dogs moving out of frame and being late to follow them. I wanted it to feel like, the opening scene of the film, which is very much composed. And that's very, very hard to get. I mean, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen. I think by the time we shot that scene, we'd been shooting for two years. So I really had a good feel for which way the dogs were going to do go and when they were going to move. And I could pan with the animals, but I had this idea of how I wanted the film to look. That was important to me. I mean, it's a very visual film. It's not particularly plot based, it's not even really a character film. There, there, there's character elements, but I was attempting to sketch that as lightly as possible. And so I kind of based it on theme and, and mood and uh, tried to put you into this place and into this, this world of these animal caretakers in a very visual way. And so, yeah, we had these, with these things. I spent a huge amount of money on this gimbal to get these kind of shots uh, at the time. They weren't really available. And, um, it delayed the film a lot because we missed shots. 
we did miss shots. And, you know, there's a lot of school of documentary thinking that you never miss a shot. For this film, I didn't feel that way. I felt like the visuals were so important that if it was a shaky shot or, or not getting the shot or getting a different shot on the tripod, I, I chose the latter. If there weren't dogs involved, I think people would accuse you of having staged some of the shots. I, I'm thinking about the closing shot, which it just seems like it was designed in your mind. You know, the rickshaw comes through late at night, a dog enters scene right, trots up the street, another dog limps behind him. It's just so visually poetic. How hard was it to get shots of that nature? Well, first of all, there is some small amount of staging in the film. And I, and I think I tried to make that obvious when it did happen. When Shabroto joins the protest scene, like we knew that protest was coming and he feeds dogs on that street. And so I sort of combined them like Shabroto, like walk down the street, there's a protest, you know, then he joined it, you know, with which we didn't know he was going to do. Those kind of shots, that, that last shot is definitely not staged. And, and one of the things I like about the film is that like some of the things that seem staged aren't. Like the puppy sequence, when when the child lifts up the puppy and takes it out of the street, that was not staged. It feels very staged, but it wasn't. I, I, I was just so ecstatic behind the camera when that happened in the perfect frame. But the same thing happened with the final shot. I I have a sort of, uh, my, my workflow is to roll long uh, on almost everything, just in case. Like, and I, I force myself to keep going, even on sort of, street shots. I was filming, uh, it was the end of the night, we were filming something else. And I said, you know, I, I need to get some nighttime exteriors in this neighborhood. There were the dogs at the end of the lane there. We started rolling and, and that, that little sequence played out. And there were so many great moments like that that never made the film. It was funny because I had, I had a, a different ending for the film, which I had to change for legal reasons. So that shot was, I'd actually forgotten about it, but I'd done such extensive logging on the film that when I had to find a new ending, I was just able to find, you know, nighttime five-star exterior in this neighborhood. And that shot popped up and I was like, oh, wow, this thing. And uh, it was the perfect ending. It was much better than the other ending. Those magic moments like that are what I love about documentaries so much. Those things where it, it can't be real, but it is real. Yeah, just, it was a great moment. So tell me about the role of color in this film. At least to my somewhat trained eye, it seems that you had a really strong colorist and that there was a game plan for the visual mood of the footage. Yeah, we focused a lot on it. The colorist is uh, Chad Smith from Massive Clouds in um, Kingston, New York. And he was extremely generous with his time and and uh, let me sit in on the on the process. So I, I got to have a lot of input and... Um, we really spent an inordinate amount of time coloring the film and um, I didn't shoot it on an expensive camera. You know, I shot this on a C100, Canon C100. Uh, I tried to get it as close in camera to what I was looking at as possible. And I thought that was pretty good. And then the coloring really took it to the next level. And we, we looked at a lot of films. He was asking me for color samples and I ended up I was looking and looking, and finally I thought of Whore's Glory by Michael Glauwager, which is a film that I love and was very inspiring to me. And I, I started sending him, you know, screenshot after screenshot of that. And he was like, oh, wow, okay, this is going to be a little different. I wanted that sort of rich, sort of earthy, saturated colors. He did a, a great job, and in the end, I think it's really a unified whole in terms of color. I mean, the, the, again, the visuals are so important. You know, I think I... 
I almost wanted it like that kind of punchy vision film stock kind of look. Uh, and then we didn't really worry about things like grain. Like um, we used very little noise reduction on, on the film. We put some in when the noise was distracting and we tried to get any color out of the noise. But uh, we, I knew it was going to be noisy. And my, my, my theory for shooting the film was um, it was never going to be perfect with the budget I had, but I wanted it to feel like a movie and I wanted it to feel cinematic and it didn't matter if there was a little grain or if it was only 1080 or if it was, you know, as, as long as the feeling was there. So I think we, we kind of nailed that. Early on, I considered that it might be shot on film, but nobody really can afford to shoot on film. What you achieved, it seems saturated and muted at the same time. It's, it's a remarkable treatment of color and it, it creates this magical environment. I've never been to Kolkata but it makes the place look magical and real. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's exactly what we wanted. And we, and we did want it sort of this muted and saturated and, and like not oversaturated, but having this, this feeling, you know, and there's, there are these concrete walls. There are these very specific color palette that Calcutta has. Uh, and, and it, it, it can have this sort of magical look to it. You know, a recent review said it looked like the greatest film set in the world. And that's, that's always how I felt about it too. You know, the way it's, the way Calcutta is lit is really incredible, especially at night. We lit as well. We did do some lighting, but I wanted to have that sort of feeling of, of cinema in the thing. I remember when we premiered at Big Sky, the programmer who, who, who picked it was at the premiere and he had obviously seen the uncolored version, you know, we had not quite finished. And I remember he said, it looked even better than what I thought the colors, you know, the first thing he said, the colors. So I'm happy you picked that out. You know, Chad, Chad did an awesome job. The spine of the film is built around for people who take care of these dogs and have their own stories to tell. Can you say a little bit about each one of them? Sure. The first one we picked was Shabroto. He's a auto rickshaw driver. Auto rickshaw is like a tuk-tuk they call in other countries. He's the nephew of a famous actress and uh, is a very eccentric guy. In fact, even more, much more wild in person than you see in the film. I, I actually toned him down a little bit because it was just too confusing in an ensemble film. But he's a wild guy. He sings, he dances, he yodels. He, he like has all these kind of uh, philosophies which you couldn't really get into in the film, but they're, they're really wild and sometimes overtly sexual and very outrageous. Very funny guy, very personable, actually, and one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life. Um, and he just feeds dogs. He feeds dogs, uh, you know, 60, 70 dogs a day uh, across Calcutta. He barely makes any money. He spends all the money he gets feeding the dogs he was the first one we cast and he had this amazing energy. And that's part of when I realized, okay, this is also really going to be about people. And then we were looking for people to match him. We, the first person we found was Millie. Millie is, uh, she's half Russian Japanese, half Bengali. Her Bengali half comes from a very elite background as elite as you can get, but she's sort of fallen on hard times and she still lives in this mansion that her, her family mansion, um, it's sometimes not clear to people who don't know India, but she lives in an enormous building that, and she's the only person in there. She feeds these dogs and she's become this champion of the dogs. She's assisted by a, a local woman, Kajol, who is sort of a lower class person. She was a uh, working class. She, is, uh, she lives on Millie's property. 
And um, she's really like a mother figure. She was, she was, would, would be like a, a maid probably if she wasn't doing this work, but um, she sort of has dedicated her life to helping these dogs and lives in this sort of shack that they built there and is an extremely positive person, you know, and really a mother figure. We saw her really as a mother figure. And the last one is Pinku, who is um, sort of a secondary character in the film. He's also, he's a tuk-tuk driver, which is basically an electric passenger cart and he's a he's an artist and he makes these beautiful carvings a very sweet person you know he had this thoughtful side which i had to sort of draw out of him in the shooting but we we could get this kind of philosophizing on what it all means so i wanted to return to something you alluded to earlier and i'm sure you've never gotten through a single interview without this being asked but the crippled puppy scene is obviously gripping to anyone watching it and must have posed a, a bit of a moral dilemma to you as a filmmaker. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that shot came about and how you approached it? Yeah, this is something you do see, not all the time, but you do see this kind of stuff. Uh, and it was, as I said, the, one of the very first things I shot for the scene. So I was walking that was nearby in my locality there in, in Calcutta. And uh, I found, I came across this puppy. It was, you know, shocking. And um, I came back with my camera and I filmed this scene, which is in the film of the puppies trying to cross this road. And I covered the, you know, the puppy was moving slowly so I could cover it, you know, and I, and then I went into this wide shot across the street and the, I, I'll, I'll, I'll ruin this because it's in the trailer, but the, the puppy was crossing the street and it's a busy street. And actually later I would realize a lot of dogs get injured on that street because there's not good uh, lines of sight and there's not a lot of escape routes because one side of the street is, is fenced off. Uh, and the puppy was going to the street and I was in this shot across the street and I was in this dilemma of what am I going to do right now? Uh, because this puppy's in a few minutes going to be in real danger of getting killed. I was sitting there going, what, what, when do I step in? What do I do? And right then this, this kid comes in out of nowhere, picks up the puppy, takes him out of the street, gives me kind of a dirty look, which I love and uh, sets the puppy down back in the dirt and walks out of frame. And I felt like in a certain way that scene encapsulated the whole film because the kid it's, like harm reduction, but also you can't solve the whole problem. You know, the kid took it out of immediate danger. That's good enough for now, you know? And um, so I got that scene. I was, that was on my scouting trip. So I was only there six weeks. And uh, I was, that was a couple of weeks before I left. And I went back over the next few days and I filmed a couple more scenes with that puppy. And I tried to figure out what do I do? What, at what point do I intervene here? And I was leaving and I said, you know, I'm not going to be back to shoot the film for six months. I had to wrap up my life in, in the USA. So I said, well, I'm going to try to help this puppy, right? Like uh, I was a big conflict over whether to do that or what to do, or what the right thing to do is. So I, I, uh, observing it, I realized, um, that the local, they call the rag pickers, like street people, you know, who, who were living there were taking care of it. They were, they would give it some food and they would throw rocks at the other dogs to make sure it could eat. And uh, so I went to them with a translator and I asked their permission to take the dog off the street and try to get it help. And they said, yes. 
So I took it and I, 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 I looked into these various places and I, at the time, got this advice to take it to a certain place about an hour outside the city. And I, I hired a car and I took it out there, you know, and I, I took it to the place and I gave them a nice donation and I asked them, like, you know, and it's, when I took, after they'd taken it and they'd taken it in the bag, they said, well, we generally don't take puppies here. Um, the puppy will die sooner here than it would on the street. We have disease. This is Darwin's law. <laughs> and so this was a big sort of wake up call to me in a lot of different ways. Number one, like I tried to fix this situation from a very Western perspective. I think mainly, to be honest, to alleviate my own guilt. And I may have made it worse. I don't know. Like the puppy was in a terrible situation. I made that decision for that dog that there wasn't any better. And then it was going to be in this unfamiliar circumstances until its death, which was probably going to happen very soon. So that really was like an ethical dilemma and a kind of wake up call to like, I need to really think about my own behavior and like, what am I, what am I doing here and why? It was the hardest, hardest thing I've ever shot. And, and it was really tough about putting it in the, in the film. I felt like it had to be in the film I ended up placing it dead center in the middle of the film because it had to be in the film. You can't make a film about street dogs, at least not in India, without showing their suffering because it's, a, it's an important part of their existence. Can you speak more broadly to kind of the, the theme of attachment you're working with and filming all these dogs, which are adorable, by the way. There's something about that breed that just engenders a sense of protectiveness, at least in me. Did you get attached to any particular dogs? and? How did you deal with that emotion in general? Uh, I would say there was some of them. Um, the, the thing is, we shot so many different dogs, and it became very clear er, somewhat early on that, like, following a couple different dogs, um, the way some of the other street dog films have recently, was, was going to be very difficult in India because of the crowds. Uh, getting, a, like, a narrative arc with a single dog was going to be so tough because I would say just in general, 70% of the films that we shot on the street were sort of ruined by crowds, either people looking at the camera or waving or doing something, you know, or, or they interacting with the dogs that we were trying to shoot, you know, for us. Um, or like another very funny thing that would happen often is, is, um, older uh, Bengali, particularly older Bengali gentlemen would come up and welcome me to India while we were shooting, while we were rolling, you know, and, and want to ask if I'd tried Bengali food yet, which is very charming, but didn't help. So we fought, filmed a lot of different dogs. And I would say the, the one that I was most attached to that was the hardest is actually in the film, you see uh, dead pulled out from under the car. Uh, we filmed a lot with this dog uh, and you only see him, you see him in, in an early shot in the opening of the film and um, you see him then, but we had had this whole, that dog was in my neighborhood and he was an older dog. His name was Burrow. He was in my neighborhood and I saw him. He was very old and extremely sick and it was like very disturbing. I, you know, I wanted to have a sequence in the film where you see an old dog getting sicker and then dying. And I thought I will film this dog I'll nurse him back to health and I'll put the scenes in reverse. So I filmed it. It'll look like I filmed the dog dying, but I have no guilt. <laughs> and when people ask me in Q and A's and get mad at me, like, how could you film that dog dying? I'll pull out this secret that I actually 
save the dog. You know, I thought it would be fun. So I, I went down there and I fed that dog by hand, you know, and he, when I found him, he was really on death's door and I had to like almost like uh, hold his head up so he could drink water. And um, I went down every day with him, cook him some chicken and rice. And, uh, you know, my Indian adopted family was very annoyed at me that I was doing all this, you know, uh, but I went down there and I'd feed him every day. And I, I got advice from all the great animal activists in Kolkata for what medications and what his ailments probably were. And we started medicating him and, and he started doing better. He went from really being on death's door to walking around. And then he even barked a couple of times. We went out one day to film him. And since he was walking around, we had the gimbal. And we we're like, we're going to have some scenes following him. And he had died and he was under this car. And um, so we, we asked what was going to happen and they'd called the, the municipality already and someone was coming to pick it up. So we just waited there for about an hour, hour and a half till this person came. And then we got this amazing scene where the person takes away the dead body and he's very cheerful and he's asking for money and he rides off on this bike with the, with the dead dog and he's whistling and singing. And um, that was like how I said goodbye to that dog, you know, which was you know, it was rough because I'm trying to make a scene and I'm trying to be as removed as possible. At the same time, I knew that dog and I care for that dog. And it, so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. I mean, I think that in the end, the dog was just uh, too old, you know, there was no saving him. So you mentioned the logistical challenges of working on the street in Kolkata. Can you tell me more about what that was like from a pure filmmaking perspective? Were you mostly a one-man crew? No, I had these three people, like after I sort of injured myself in the beginning and realized how, you know, I had to have a crew of three. Kostov Sinha came in and was my sound recordist and uh, eventually assistant director and, and co-writer also because he really became a collaborator in, in talking about these characters. He was the main uh, on-the-site translator and then he was one of the translators um, in, in, you know, for transcripts. It's a very difficult sound situation there. It's extremely noisy, honking, it's very loud, ambient traffic noise everywhere. Uh, I was extremely happy we won a, a, um, a prize for sound design at the Mumbai International Film Festival because I think they could understand what we'd done. It was, we had, and we had uh, mics running everywhere. We were, we, I didn't want to do a lot of adding in post. We, we, did, we did do, our sound designer did a great job of, of sort of fleshing it out. So we were running stereo mics and everyone had lobs and we were running mid-side stereo and X, Y. And then I had, I realized I also needed this camera assistant. So Rajib Kuila came in and he, he was a friend of Kostov. So we just trained to sort of be a general camera assistant because we didn't have a car. We were going around in cabs and walking for most of this. And I had to have someone hold the bag. I had to have someone assist me with lens changes because it wasn't always a place you could safely put something down and sort of general stuff like that. And also we had to be careful with the, you know, of the stuff because it's very, very high likelihood if you put something down, a dog would pee on it, which only did happen twice. You know, they want to market. This is a new thing for them. So <laughs> it was, it was, it was us three. And we had a, we had a couple of people come in occasionally when we needed extra people, but for the most part, that was like a three man crew. So if my math is correct, I believe you shot 165 hours on the streets of Kolkata. And you were there for two and a half to three years. By necessity, you would have had a life outside of this film. Can you tell me what it was like just for an American to be living a life in Kolkata? Yeah, that was the best part of the whole experience. I mean, there was long periods where we weren't shooting. Uh, and especially as it went on, they were longer and longer because we were, for instance, waiting for Millie to allow us to come 
shoot in her house and she wasn't available every day and she didn't feel like shooting every day. And so, uh, or Shabroto would be hard to get a hold of or nothing would be happening. And I was start, I was running out of money, you know, so we had to start thinking more carefully about what days we're shooting. Is, is something happening today? Or are we just going to go hang out? Uh, you know, because I was paying the crew and it, it was just, you know, Auditi Sarkarm, the producer, the executive producer of the film, basically they adopted me into her family. So I, I lived with her and her daughter and her brother's family in their in their house in Bhuvanapur, Kolkata. That was like my main sort of socializing. I, I, I made some friends, but I, I sort of stayed with that family, became part of that family. And it was uh, like one of the best experiences of my life, really, you know, because we're still in touch. I was just talking to them last night. We talk multiple times per week. You know, I'll be involved with them for the rest of my life. So it became so I was just really a part of that family. I was in the middle of family fights. I was taking the kid to school. I was helping with homework. I was, I think they probably know me as well as any people on the earth right now. It was also a huge learning experience for me, like in terms of culture, also living with a family is so much different than traveling somewhere. So I learned a lot about America, actually, I would say from things I didn't understand were culturally specific. Um, yeah, I got very, very close to people there. So, um, I mean, I wish that everyone could have that experience in their life, you know? I mean, it's, it's such a different culture and there's so many things. And it, I mean, there's some things about it that are much better to me than American culture, you know? I mean, the, the people are so intimate um, in their discussions. People are so close with their family that can cause a lot of problems. But yeah, that was, it was really something. The film is somewhat hands-off from a narrative perspective. To, to the extent you intended there to be a message in this film, what is that message? You know, I don't really think about uh, the kind of films I want to make as being message-based films. Um, I think that there is a place for that, but I don't think that that's my impetus for filmmaking. Um, I think it's more about discussion and it's more about themes I mean, I'm sure there are messages in the film, you know, but um, it's more questions, you know, like how do we deal with suffering? Like how do we deal with loneliness? Can love cut through how tough life is? I mean, I think I have a sort of, in some ways, Buddhist approach to like life is suffering, you know, how do we deal with that? I was dealing with those issues in my personal life with like loss of a family member when I made the film. And, and I think, uh, if there's a message like, yeah, in terms of a hard concrete message, I hope that people in India can become responsible for the immediate dogs in their vicinity. That would be wonderful. Like, I don't have a big political agenda. I think if people could just take some responsibility for the dogs in their locality, it can change their lives immensely. But from a creative perspective, I think it was more about these sort of big questions that I personally was struggling with. And, and I found that sort of mirrored in both the dogs' lives and the, the people. You mentioned earlier uh, your father, Howard Alk, um, a noted documentary filmmaker, directed the uh, murder of Fred Hampton and also worked extensively with Bob Dylan. You were quite young when he passed away, but the filmmaking gene was apparently passed on. Can you tell me a little bit about that influence on you and how that worked as you moved through adolescence into adulthood? Yeah. Um, well, I had a very unusual childhood. 
it's a long story, but my father was working with, on a Dylan film um, as I was growing up. And so that was the environment that I grew up in, playing in the editing room as they were cutting this film, Ronaldo and Clara. And that film recently, this day, they, they, they recut the footage of the Scorsese film. And I saw it and it was just shocking because I remember the footage from five years old. I remember some of these shots playing on the Steenbeck. He was a very powerful, uh, extremely intelligent uh, a person who accomplished a lot of things in life, including founding the Second City uh, Comedy Club in Chicago. He was a powerful presence when I was a kid, for sure. But he, he passed away so early, I didn't really get to learn anything about filmmaking from him. But um, I think when you lose a, a, a family member, a parent like that so young, and there is this visual record of how they saw the world a bit, particularly in the Panther films, because I think those are the most personal. That's something that can be passed down to you that you can sort of connect with this person that you've lost. And I, as I think, I think about film on those terms a lot, you know, much more so than like having a career. Um, I think about leaving a little piece of how I see the world. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I might've inherited his somewhat uncommercial genes <laughs> in terms of making films that make money. But, but um, you know, and I definitely have this kind of outsider, you know, my, my, my dad was not like an, an insider uh, filmmaker, you know, he was, he was kind of uh, the counterculture, you know, I think, I think all that somehow passed down to me, but unfortunately not directly. Would you mind talking a little bit about the economics of being a, a modern day documentary filmmaker i i focus a lot on the films because they're they deserve it but i'm always curious about the lifestyle one must adopt to do this it's you spent three years literally on the streets of kolkata making this one film that will not make you rich i'm i'm gonna guess yeah i don't think i could have you know uh, the the circumstances uh just came together that i could make this film i had a little bit of money because I'd inherited some money from a family member that passed away and um, I'd saved up some money from my job. And um, when I knew I was going to make the film, I was working 70 hours a week, two jobs, just trying to save up as much as I could. And that's how I bought the camera and some of the equipment. And uh, I'd hoped to go and make the film in six months because of, of money. When the characters dropped out, when I saw that I was, this is just going to be much slower than I thought. And there's just no way that I was going to, have to stay here. Then I, at one point realized, no, it's going to take everything. It's going to take everything I have. I was only able to do that because number one, I was living with the family and I was, I was paying them some rent, but it was much cheaper than if I'd been, you know, like at hotels or anything like impossible. And uh, number two, of course, India and the, the money situation lasted longer. Number three, like I don't have, uh, a big life. You know, I don't have any kids. I wasn't married. Um, I didn't care enough about the jobs that I was quitting to let them hold me back. And I was well willing to sell all my stuff and go to India. So um, I did that and it did eat up everything that I had uh, up to the point where I had, I had a 401k from working this job that I, I cashed out early to do the post-production. And uh, you know, no one, no one wants to do that. You know I mean? That was everything I had, but it was, it was that or not make the film. And it wasn't the kind of film that got support, financial support from the industry or a ton of support in general. It was that or not make the film. And I had to make the film. So 
it's very funny because yeah, some of my friends think that somehow because the film's been reviewed in the guardian or something like I made money, but um, I'm hugely in the hole and all through the festival circuit, I was couch surfing sometimes to be totally honest down to about 200 bucks in a checking account. And somehow I made it work, you know, and uh, that unfortunately, like unless you, you know, come from money or have a backup career that you can go back and forth from. If you're in my position, that's, that's kind of the only way it's going to happen. So like right now, like I'm staying at my um, aunt and uncle's house while I plan this next feature and I've just rented an apartment in this new city. I'm going to go try to film, but um, it's tenuous. And unfortunately the documentary ecosystem right now is really not paying filmmakers. It just can't support it. VOD sales are very low. There's just not income. We're in a very strange position where um, there's, there's awareness about it in the industry of like, Hey, directors and producers are, are not getting paid. If you have to self-produce like, like I did to make this film, there's almost zero chance of you recouping. We're starting a new film knowing that as well. This time I have a couple of producers who are putting a little money and very upfront with them. I said that the chance of getting this money back is almost zero, you know, be aware of that. That's just the sad reality of where we are right now as an industry. Uh, there's, there's made this very, very thin margin of films on the very top that get into Sundance and get picked up by a big distributor. Maybe they'll get a director's fee out of that, you know, but for the most of us, it's, it's a losing proposition. And it's uh, I think why most people make one or two documentaries and then stop. Hmm. That really hit home because I, I do talk to a lot of filmmakers who do exactly that. They make one film and then that's it. I don't use this term lightly, but I think documentary filmmaking is a heroic way to spend a life. You are literally leaving these artifacts that enrich the world around you and us. And it's a fair amount of maybe suffering is going too far, but it's certainly a certain amount of like self-denial in terms of the, the fruits of a normal life to do this. I hope you take some solace in knowing that the people who consume these documentaries at the end are richly improved by them. I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's, that's what, that's, <laughs> that's the payoff, you know? I mean, I, you know, and I think that's why I, I, I really, my heart goes out to people who, whose entire festival run has been online, you know, because you know, the, one of the things that kept me going once the film premiered at festivals is being able to talk to people face to face and not everyone likes this film. It's not for everybody you know, but uh, the people who do seem to really like it. And I had some amazing experience with people who were really touched by the film and uh, you know, four times in the festival circuit, strangers hugged me, you know, which I thought was really incredible and just spoke to that. Okay. I, I, I something touched them about this film and they feel that way by extension about me. You know, I thought that was really, really powerful and I mean, I don't know. This is my first film. I don't know if that's a lot of hugging happens, <laughs> but uh, it was, um, yeah, that's the payoff, right? I mean, you know, I, I hope I can keep doing this. We're going to try one more right now and, and, uh, and see what we can do for me. Uh, you know, with my sort of family history, there's a little bit more impetus to sort of keep going. Um, even if it's a, a struggle than, than if it was more of a career choice. But um, I have uh, been warned about this. It's part of why I didn't make films for a long time because I was very much warned at, at film school 
you know, make a vial of poverty if you want to be a documentary filmmaker. What can you tell us about the next project? Oh, nothing yet. I mean, it's 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 very much in the early stages. We, you know, we've got the equipment, most of the equipment. We're sort of doing uh, the scouting and sort of getting the people on board. But it's I can tell you, it's set in Alaska, in rural Alaska, and it's another community-based film and very much a place-based film. The way the way uh, Pariah Dog was, I think that that's for me a sense of place is is what really gets my creative juices flowing. So. Um, hopefully, you know, in the next six months, you can sort of lock it down. But early stages of a documentary, there's so many variables that it all may, the whole house of cards may collapse. So I'm always very, very afraid to sort of say anything too early. So, uh, if you, if, if anyone wants to follow the Pariah Dog Facebook page, we'll probably announce it there sometime. This is a film of moments, like really extraordinary moments. The second you see the howling dog in the trailer, I think if you've got blood pumping through your veins, you're like, I've got to see this. I understand that was a fairly extraordinary scene to actually go out and get. It's funny because we shot that scene very near the end of the film. And we, you know, in the last pass of the edit, a lot of dog material was removed. Um, I just, it needed to be shorter and it needed to be tighter. And um, because it had four human characters with sort of, some amount of information that had to come across. It was, unfortunately, there were other scenes like this that, that had to be removed, but this was the strongest one. Also, it sets up some of the themes, you know, about this sort of loneliness and isolation. And this is a single dog without a pack, you know, up against the world, really. That actually was in front of my house in Kolkata. And I heard that dog howling every night for a month. Uh, this is the last few months of filming um, before I left. I came back to edit the film, but before I left to go log all the footage, I heard him howling at his very distinctive mournful howl. And so we knew basically what was going to happen. So I went out and I, I wanted a scene of a dog howling at night like that. We, we'd, we'd intended to shoot more d nighttime dog stuff like this, but so logistics of things were a little difficult with the crew about them getting home, uh, extremely difficult to get a cab that late at night. And so they would have to stay over at my house. We knew that was going to happen. So we went out there and by that point we were really the three of us, a well-oiled machine. So, um, you know, we could move so quickly and set the tripod so fast so that we didn't have to cover this stuff handheld and everyone was getting out of each other's way. And, uh, and we got this, we got this scene um, right in the middle of it. A, a, a sort of intoxicated guy drove up in his car and was idling and, you know, trying to talk to us. And luckily he left and we were able to finish the scene. But yeah, it's a very typical sort of thing. These, these standoffs in the middle of the night between the two packs, they're always testing each other's boundaries. And that dog didn't have a pack. So he lived on our street and all night he was running from one end of the block to the other, trying to cover both bases because he only had a single block territory. And uh, it was extremely stressful for him. And there's a scene in that sequence that I think was just shocking to me, which is, you know, the dogs are facing off and I've got him in a sort of wide frame. And I had this sense that the dogs were about to leave. And I started panning the camera. And as I started panning the camera, the dogs started to leave and he started to walk at the same speed the camera was panning to the right. 
And I was just couldn't believe it was happening. It was like, it was coordinated, you know, like I didn't start after him. I started at the same time. And um, I was just holding my breath. Like don't jerk the pan at the end, like tilt up slightly. And you know, we got this, that shot. And then the, the scene of him howling quickly translate, move the tripod. So he's howling in the middle of the street and we're firing on all cylinders as a crew at that point, And the dog just behaved perfectly. So that's those are magic moments where it all just kind of works out and you know, it's not controlled, but it feels controlled. That's what I love. And it's got that almost Edward Hopper lighting. It's just, uh, it is a incredibly moody shot. I'm a big um, fan of Edward Hopper, you know, definitely. <laughs> one thing I didn't ask, th- this is purely a curious question. What, what was your relationship to dogs before you made this film? And what is it now having made the film? You know, it's funny. I'm more of a cat person. Uh, <laughs> I, I like dogs. I mean, I had dogs when I was a kid. I, I, I like animals. I'm just interested in animals in general. Uh, it's one of the things I loved when I went to India that like you interacting with water buffalo and there monkeys around and these birds of prey and dogs and cats. I, I, I just, I like that. It feels like it enriches my life um, to have animals around, but I haven't lived a lifestyle that's allowed me as an adult to have a dog. I, I, it's too much of a responsibility. I don't, I, you know, I don't have a, a house like that or and I move and it's just not possible. But yeah, I do like them. I think that it's changed a little in that I can't help now, but like when a dog is in the room, all my attention goes to it. And I'm watching it, seeing what it's thinking, seeing, what it, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, that's, that's changed a little bit. Uh, you, you can't turn it off. And it's funny because I know like I'm never going to make another film about dogs, you know, but uh, you, you can't stop sort of thinking about them on those terms. Did you develop like a super deep spidey sense about dog body language? Oh yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. I did a little reading about it first, you know, because the dogs in India are extremely smart and they can read people. They have to be able to read people to survive. You know, they need to know whether you're a threat or whether you're an ally or, or what. And uh, they're, they're watching you with an intelligence that I, I don't see in other dogs. And they're just natively intelligent dogs for the most part. And there were like, so we, we definitely knew uh, that, you know, look, the dogs will bark at you, right? But there's a different kinds of barking. There's an aggressive barking. There's a barking to say, hey, this, you're in my space. Acknowledge me that this is mine and you're a visitor. That's totally cool. You know, you have to understand the difference. Um, and you have to communicate back in their own body language. You know, very simple things like, you know, not making direct eye contact, turning your body to the side instead of, directly frontal towards them looking up, you know, like a dog would do if it was trying to diffuse conflict. And the big one was sitting down. You know, if you sit down 80% of the time, the dogs are going to immediately calm down because no aggressive animal sits down. Um, we couldn't have like a monopod, which is like a single leg tripod because they interpreted it as a club. Um, so for the most part, and this is funny because I've interacted with hundreds and hundreds of street dogs. I also had an Instagram account where I photographed them. It's connected to the film. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, like right up close. And uh, I've never in all that time been, I've been barked at a lot, 
And you have to understand what kind of bark it is. I've never been snarled at and I've never been snapped at in all that time, you know? So that's what makes me believe that like this human animal conflict can be worked out if there's a little better communication. Well, Jesse, this is such an, an affecting film. I really want to thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. love to talk about the film and thanks so much for, for asking me. Thanks to Jesse Alk. His documentary, Pariah Dog, can be seen on Apple TV. It's Breck Bassinger, but you may recognize my voice as Stargirl from CW Stargirl. And as Stargirl, I always listen to Stargirl After Show. It's so much fun getting to listen to all of my different castmates' interviews, hear about DC lore, and of course, all the Stargirl history. So make sure you go listen to Stargirl After Show. And yes, I know I just said Stargirl like 50 times, (laughs) but seriously, go listen to it. When you want to break up your fall monotony with something new and interesting to eat, try Blue Apron's two-in-four serving menu plans with those hard-to-find ingredients sure to spice up your weekend. With 60-plus options each week, you can choose from an ever-changing mix of high-quality meat, fish, vegetarian, WW-recommended, and health-conscious offerings. Get a $100 gift card, plus enjoy $130 off across your first six orders when you place an order by September 23rd. Visit blueapron.com unique2022. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232.